Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Just to be very clear, there are many dangers of CRISPR, but in the history of human beings, in the history of humankind, we have not come across a molecular tool, a molecular machine, with this level of ease that can allow us to alter genomes. It is a powerful tool, it can be misused, but let's not underestimate the enormous good use that CRISPR can be put to. That's Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee talking about the extraordinary power scientists like him have now to edit our genes using the tool known as CRISPR. Dr. Mukherjee uses CRISPR in his own laboratory at Columbia University here in New York to pioneer innovative ways to treat cancer. And he's a masterful storyteller. He's the author of the best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. And his latest book is The Gene, An Intimate History. I think what makes him so readable, apart from his obvious command of the science behind his books, is his ability to make it all personal and intimate. We talked about that when he sat down with me in our studio in New York. This is so great that you could talk with me today because what's wonderful, I think, is what a good writer you are about your work and about the whole field. Your latest book, The Gene and Intimate History, is an intimate history. Your stories about your uncles and your cousin who suffered from schizophrenia, did you do that deliberately to make the material available to us? No. Uh, right from the very beginning, um, I've thought about the process of writing about anything in science as intimate. Um, and that is... Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? So there's an intimacy to the life sciences, which is what I mostly write about, that's necessary. Uh, it's part of you. It, and the minute you cross the border between being well and being ill... The minute your friend does, the minute your son does, your, your daughter does, your parents do, you all of a sudden experience the intimacy of medicine, the intimacy of biology. Uh, so right from the beginning when I started writing, I, th I thought to myself, I, I made a rule, and I actually follow that rule. The rule is basically that you won't go through six pages of my book without encountering a real character. 
Oh, Someone that's real. great. That you made a you made that a rule. I made that a rule. That's great. So, so, so the rule is that you cannot go beyond six. And that character might be me sitting in the lab one evening thinking about something. That character might be my cousin suffering from schizophrenia in a in an institution in in Calcutta. It might be a scientist whose life you didn't really know about. Uh, but you don't go. You you never traverse six pages in the book without suddenly realizing this could be you. This could be someone you knew. This is part of who you are. This is part of your life. When I think of how personally you made, especially the opening paragraphs of your book, get right down to the presentation of a character that the reader can suffer along with. And it reminded me of my own mother who suffered from schizophrenia and paranoia uh-huh. most of her I life. Did, I did not know that. And yeah. uh, I was, of course, drawn to your story, but it, I think everyone will be because it's it's so human. And I, it made me wonder, did that in some way, living with illness like that, did that in some way motivate you to want to devote yourself to medicine rather than the big secrets in nature? <laughs> well, I, I sort of came into medicine a little bit backwards. I, um, very un- unusually, I think, um, I, I, I was an undergraduate. Um, I worked in a lab. I worked in Paul Berg's lab. Paul Berg discovered and won the Nobel Prize for discovering the the technology that allows us to combine genes, take a gene, one gene from a virus and one gene from a bacteria and mix them, match them together, stitch them together into a single unit. And all of a sudden, nature reads it as if it was one gene. The field is called recombinant DNA. Mm-hmm. Paul invented recombinant DNA. I worked with Paul, and I thought at that time that I would be a basic researcher. Um, uh, this was when I was in my 20s. So you started out there. I started out there, yes. Mm. Um, and then I went to Oxford, and I started studying a virus called Epstein-Barr virus. It's a very common virus. Most of us have it. We carry it chronically. And the question was a question that started off as a basic question, which is, why is it that uh, if you get the flu, influenza, your immune system completely clears the virus and you can't find the virus in your body once you're done? Mm. with the flu. But with Epstein-Barr virus, how can this virus live inside your body forever? You still have a competent immune system. So why is it that the flu gets eliminated, but Epstein-Barr virus doesn't get eliminated? So that started off as a basic science problem. But then I became interested in the fact that this virus is not just a, a machine. It it actually it, it causes disease. It causes illness. And one of the illnesses it causes is cancer. So I became interested in cancer. So the latter half of my graduate work, I started working on cancer. And then I thought to myself, gosh, you know, this is more interesting to me than, than you know, solving those sort of molecular clockwork puzzles, uh, which were also fascinating. And I said, you know, other, and also other people are better at it than I am solving those molecular clockwork puzzles. My skill set is more of a kind of a sort of like an inventor. I like to invent things. Mm. Um, I like to take those pieces of clockwork and say, how can I now jigger it a little bit differently and make a medicine out of it? Um, that's what I like to do. I like making medicines. Um, I like making therapies. Um, and I like making therapies, obviously, for human beings, not for, for mice. So, <laughs> <laughs> Although it's not, you probably cured a lot of mice along the way. Yeah, I've cured a lot of mice along the way. But, um, but I like making therapies for human beings. And I'd like to see them come alive as medicines. Thank you.
It sounds like you you were able, as you were putting all these things together that were already known, you had, you had to also keep up with what was increasingly known. It seems like the knowledge has been growing at a rapid pace. The idea that, I mean, it's an old idea, I think, that goes back to the fly room at, uh, That's right. That's, at, at Columbia, Columbia where they were working on fruit flies. And and got got some basic understanding, but then since that's like almost or more than a hundred years ago, and it's rapidly increased since. And what what did they find out at in the fly room? Well, gosh, the fly room is one of those places in the history of biology and medicine where discoveries came upon discoveries came upon discoveries. Uh, you know, it was like. Uh, a spray of Nobel Prizes came out of that fly room. Generation after generation, generation of scientists. After generation, generation yeah. of scientists. And that's because they were studying an organism which reproduces very rapidly um, and has mutations, and you can track those mutations. So what came out of the fly room? Lots of things. Well, first of all, one thing that came out of the fly room is the idea that genes um, don't sit like uh, you know molecules separated in space. They're linked together. That's the phenomenon is called linkage. What's the linkage? The linkage is that the genes are physically linked together. That in fact, one gene sits next to each other on a chromosome like beads on a string. This was not known. This was not known in the 1920s. People had all sorts of ideas about what the physical structure of a gene would look like. So I remember in the book, some, is this related to what you're talking about, that uh, blonde hair and blue eyes well, often it, it, go exactly. together because the genes are right next to each yeah, other. It, so that was an, that's a fictional example, but there are other very non-fictional examples. There are diseases that often go together because their genes are sit close to each other. I see. Uh, there are traits that often go together because their genes are, are, are linked together. Now, that idea in turn is part of the basis of the Human Genome Project. Years later, it would be using these same kinds of tools that people would figure out who, which gene is linked to, to, to whom and thereby be able to construct a map, a linear map of genes. And once you've constructed a linear map of genes, that's the first step towards the Human Genome Project, which is to completely map in all, in all chromosomes all human genes. But once you map it, aren't you stuck with the problem that it's not just this gene causes that problem, but sometimes it's a combination of genes that cause a problem, and the time or sequence in which they're activated. Isn't that a question, too? So both of those are incredibly important questions. Many of also came out of the fly room, by the way. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so so, so how, what hope do you have with so many variables? How can you, how can you put this, these ideas together to, to connect the genetic sources of a disease with the disease itself? So the first thing one, have to, one, one has to understand is that there are various kinds of diseases. There are some diseases in which basically one gene or a mutation or a change in one gene is enough to cause the disease. There are some diseases if you inherit one copy of that, or of that mutated gene, you would inherit the disease or have the disease. So mm. a good example of this is Huntington's disease. Right, so as far as we, as far as we can tell, for to the first approximation, if you are were to inherit a mutated copy of the Huntington's disease gene, you would in your lifetime have have that lethal neurodegenerative disease. So that's a monogenic single gene disease, um, and it's a dominant. Then there are diseases which are also monogenic, where you need two copies of the gene, 
in order to get the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you need one copy from your father, one copy from your mother, and when you have both the copies and both of them are mutant, you get the disease. So these are very sim- these are simple diseases, and unsurprisingly, they were mapped first. So these are diseases like sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, and other diseases like that, where again, you have either one copy of the gene or in, in these other two recent cases, two copies of the gene are enough to cause the disease. On the far end of the spectrum, you have diseases such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, depression, uh, which clearly carry a genetic link. But But two things are true. Number one is that no single gene, generally speaking, no single gene explains the disease. It's a combination of maybe hundreds, maybe 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 several hundreds, maybe even a thousand odd genes that are required in order for you to get the disease. That's one thing. And the second thing is that these diseases are often, not always, but often um, uh, triggered by either chance or by the environment. Mm. Most common diseases, heart, heart, heart disease, coronary artery disease, I should say, to be more particular, schizophrenia, um, and other diseases have genetic links, but not one gene is not sufficient, and the environment and chance and triggers play a big role in unleashing the disease uh, and making it uh, become real, as it were, in a human being. So this brings up a serious question in my mind, and I'm really curious about what your thinking is on this. If you take a disease like schizophrenia, which we both know from personal experience is extremely painful, not only for the patient, but, but for, for the, the family. For the family. Yeah. It's really, really difficult. If, if that disease has the interaction of a thousand genes, and in addition to that, you don't know in which order they're expressed. Mm-hmm or at what time and how, how long it takes before the next one, that kind of thing. Now that we have the tools to really manipulate the genome, like CRISPR, where you can go in and cut out exactly what you want to get out mm-hmm. and put in what you want to put in, are we not in danger of mucking it up because we don't know what the unintended consequences are. We might fix one aspect of the problem and cause another serious one, which, if unless I'm wrong, can be inherited by the children. So you've raised a, a, an enormous set of issues, um, and we should go through them systematically. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's take a step back first. Let us take a disease which is polygenic, highly polygenic, and, and influenced by the environment. So has a very has a very strong environmental so influence. So what would that be? So uh, coronary artery disease, heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So we now know, and this is actually very recent data, that you can predict, um, you c- before you could predict your risk of coronary, having coronary artery disease based on your age, based on your gender, based on your, uh, whether you had high levels of LDL, uh, this low-density lipocholesterol, mm. basically. Does right? family history play Family history, exactly. Uh, hypertension, it says it was a whole bunch of risk factors. But among those risk factors, absolutely, was family history. And as soon as you hear the word family history, you have to start thinking, ding, 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 genetics, right? Right, right. We now know from work done, very elegant work done in Boston by Sek Katerizen, who was a, actually was one of my teachers um, as, a, uh, as a resident. Uh, very elegant work done by his laboratory, which shows that 
you can now predict to, to a great degree of accuracy based on your genetics alone, whether you're likely to have or suffer from coronary disease in the future or not. Okay, so and the number of genes is quite a lot. It's not one gene. It's not two genes, although there are certainly one or two genes that dominate. But for most people who have a risk of coronary disease, the number of genes is many. So you could say, well, should we be nihilists about this whole situation? Because, I mean, you know, what do we do? Well, you can actually turn out for that disease. You can do many things. You can do early interventions. You can decrease, you know, you can monitor people. You can put them on a medicine. Um, you know, you can put them on medicines that might lower the risk of heart attacks. So there are certainly growing numbers of examples in which despite the fact that there are many, many genes involved in a problem, these genes can be not, the genes cannot be manipulated, but the physiology can be manipulated in a way that you can prevent the disease. So that would be one non-nihilistic answer to what we could do. Yeah. The second answer which you're getting at is could we use CRISPR? So could we use CRISPR to alter the genes? It would be an enormous technical challenge because CRISPR is good, very good right now. The tools that we have with CRISPR, and we use them extensively, I use them extensively in the laboratory. CRISPR is very good at single gene problems. Um, CRISPR is not designed to, uh, right now, it's not designed to take multiple genes and make multiple alterations in multiple genes for lots of technical reasons. It's not designed to do that. It can be, one could imagine it, that you could use it serially, as it were, to ch change one, change the other, change the third, or maybe change three at a time or four at a time. But it's not designed to change hundreds of genes at the same time. Well, first of all, you'd have to be pretty sure that you're making changes that don't interact with one another in, a, in an unfortunate way, right? You absolutely have to do this. And in fact, there are two effects that you need to watch out for if you were to do this in a human being. And if you were to do this in a human being in a way that would be inherited by their children, one is you'd have to make sure that you've actually changed the gene that you want to change and not some other gene. That would be an off-target effect of the technology. So you give it the address... Exactly. And it you goes give it to, to that address. That's exactly right. And but how do you know it's not 123 Houston Street or 123A? Exactly. So CRISPR can make that mistake. So that toolbox can make the mistake between 123 and 123A Houston Street. The, 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 the best example someone gave me recently is that apparently there's a Bible called the Wicked Bible in which they made a transcriptional error while the person was writing it. And rather than writing, thou shalt not commit adultery, they, they, they miss the word not. And, and, and the, the Bible reads, thou shalt commit adultery. This, this explains so much. <laughs> exactly. So, so the question you could be asking is... The next is, thing that happened were divorce lawyers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And they had to be crisped out. Right? So, <laughs> so, so, so but, but, but to go backwards, but to go backwards, you're exactly right. How do you know that it won't go to 123A and deliver the parcel, which is, in this case, the parcel happens to be a bomb, like yeah. a, a pair of scissors, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. That will cut the house. So or, how, do you, how do you guard against that? Or do you just, does it just happen infrequently it, enough to well, make so it important? It, it happens infrequently. It happens under particular circumstances. Uh, it happens when you choose, when the addresses are very close. So, in other words, it happens when there are two genes that are very that that sound like 123 Houston Street and 123A Houston Street. When you have two genes like this, chances of both being cut or being messed up become higher. 
Um, whereas if you have 123 Houston Street and 123 Boston Street, um, the chances of that making the CRISPR figuring out the difference is quite high. CRISPR doesn't usually cut Boston; it'll cut only Houston Street. Um, so, so that's one. That's that's the off-target effect of CRISPR as a technology. But you're asking a second question, which is a deeper question, which is, so let's suppose you actually cut the right address. You get the right address. You go to 123 Houston Street. How do you know that eliminating that house won't all of a sudden cause every other house in the neighborhood to start toppling down? Because it turned out that, that you know, it turned out that there was a common wall between all of them. Is there, I'm imagining time issues too tell me tell me if i'm too imaginative no those are their time issues too if you if you alter a gene that's useful now to this person but there's something that you've done that skips a generation you might not know that you've done harm until there's a grandchild that's exactly right so there's a very practical example which has already occurred which is what's that well, so you, as you might know, there was a there was universal condemnation of the idea that a particular gene was altered in two Chinese uh, girls, um, and we know from other lines of evidence that these two genes may be involved in protection against a uh, a virus. So, so the logic of the experiment was to protect these two girls from HIV. The problem was that these girls had no risk of HIV. Their father was infected. And as you very well know, you don't pass on HIV infection through sperm. Um, it, it is a bloodborne infection. So the risk of these children having HIV was, was basically nil. Despite that, the, the scientist went ahead, obtained what we think now is very shoddy consent, not very good consent from the parents. Of course, the embryos could not give consent. And two children were born, two girls were born, with a genetically modified genome uh, uh, with a change that was, uh, I should say, Partly deliberate. The exact we don't know all the details because it, the the case is under a, a, a lot of investigation. But what we do know is that gene, the gene that was affected, presumably to protect these these kids from HIV infection, uh, those genes are also involved in um, uh, in, in in protecting pe- people from infections by another virus, other viruses. So we may have set up, the scientists may have set up these children actually for greater danger. And that's one of the cardinal principles of medicine, do no harm. First, right. do no harm. Sure. So so that's one example of, of CRISPR gone wrong. Just to be very clear, there are many dangers of CRISPR. But in the history of human beings, in the history of humankind, we have not come across a molecular tool, a molecular machine, with this level of ease that can allow us to alter genomes. It is a powerful tool. It can be misused. But let's not underestimate the enormous good use that CRISPR can be put to. When we come back after a short break, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee tells me about how he himself is using CRISPR in a novel way to treat a cancer that up till now has been incurable.
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. In spite of my worries about it, I'm pleased to see that scientists around the world are talking cautiously about the, the new tools available like CRISPR and talking about the ethics of doing certain things. But one, one of the things I wonder about is I don't get the impression that that's organized, that everybody's up to their own cultural and personal decision-making process. Uh, it's, it's certainly organized by nation, so, uh, uh. Um, or by, by in many nations, I should say. In the United States, uh, we've now had several documents by national authorities um, giving scientists advice about what to do and what not to do with CRISPR. Um, we are running actually one of the most exciting studies that I've ever done in my life with CRISPR. Tell uh, me about that. It's an incredibly exciting study, um, and it's in leukemia. It's, it's in a form of leukemia, blood cancer, white blood cell cancer, which is uh, incurable, um, often incurable. So in, in one particular subset of these patients, uh, the mortality rate can be 98%. Uh, all of them die. So we, th for generations, people have tried to find things on the cancer that they can direct an immune attack against that are not present on normal cells. The problem in this leukemia, in this form of leukemia called myeloid leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, AML, is that we've never found such a thing. Every time we find something on the cancer cell, it's also present on normal blood cells. So you... You, you, you throw a bomb at the cancer and you, cell. you kill a good cell. And you kill a good cell. The problem is that these good cells, you can't live without. These are your blood cells. These are yeah. cells that form. So we were stuck in this kind of immunological uh, impasse. Uh, we couldn't fight the cancer, even though we there were many things on the cancer that were visible. But if you made them, if you fought them, uh, you would kill a normal cell. Now... The study that we're running is a kind of study in inverse. I call it a black and white study because what we do is we say, let's not go after the cancer cell. Let's leave the cancer cell alone. What if we take the normal cells in your body and convert them, take out something such that now the cancer becomes unique and distinct? So in other words, what if you take, rather than focusing on the cancer, alter the normal cells in the body and thereby force or bioengineer the cancer to become unique. How do you do that without hurting the 
normal cells. Well, well, the, how do you? What, what way do you alter them that doesn't? By using CRISPR. So you take CRISPR and you delete or you take away a non-essential gene that uh. is on the surface of the normal cell. And once you've taken that non-essential gene away, the normal cell suddenly lacks it, but the cancer cell suddenly has it, and out it, it sort of pops out of the blue. It's a little bit like saying the cancer is hiding. Imagine the cancer hiding in a feed, a crowd. Now, if I could tell every normal cell to change its color somehow. The bad one will stick out. The bad one will stick out. And now you can use whatever tools you have to um, to kill the bad one. And this is exactly so what's So how happening. far along are you with this in, in so the this lab? Is, uh, no, this is now moved beyond the lab. This is now moving into humans. And the first in human studies, we hope, will be launched next year. Wow. So this is the example of what I mean. CRISPR and the CRISPR toolbox came out of the hands of basic biologists studying bacteria, studying viruses, not studying leukemia. I'm a leukemia biologist. I sit in my leukemia biology world and think to myself, what tools are being invented that all of a sudden allow me to make a cancer cell pop out? By the way, it was I'm not the only person who thought about it. Four or five people, four or five groups, immediately thought about the idea first. We were the first to patent it, so uh, we're moving it into trials. But it was surprising, and perhaps not surprising, the world is obviously full of very smart scientists, but what often in in human medicine, in making human medicine, we're waiting for a tool, a technological piece. And when that technological piece comes, all of a sudden things switch. And that's very exciting to watch because that, you know, it's almost as if that piece of technology turns the whole field on its head. Right, it's it's an, uh, that that is a beautiful thing to see. As you talk, I think about what we humans seem to always tend toward is taking those tools that you're talking about, and in a way, seeing if we can get our heart's desire, <laughs> like super babies. Yes, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing if. I had a super baby that was really super with no deficit in, in exchange for the superiority. But one of the bad things I can imagine is that super babies, if they're possible, will be available to people with the money who can afford them. And the, the gulf between the rich and the poor will probably grow even greater. Well, this has been a big concern. This has been a, it's a big, big issue. But, but you already pointed out why it's very, going to be very difficult to make super babies in the manner that, that we were describing before. Most traits that are desirable um, in societies, and I'll come back to this word desirable because I, I don't believe in super babies. You don't think that it's good or possible? I think that it's neither good nor possible. Um, so, but that's so. Separate. If it's not possible, we don't have to worry about how good it exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> so, so just let's let's talk about the possibility first. Yes. You just pointed out exactly the problem. The problem with most human traits that people find quote unquote desirable are carried by so many genes 
that using CRISPR technology would be, it would be virtually impossible to alter all those genes. You'd be better off finding a partner that had those those traits. Yeah, or just send your kid to a good tutor. <laughs> or send your kid to a good tutor. Uh, or improve the economic circumstances in which the child was growing up, etc., right. uh, etc. Et You'd be far better off. That would be a far less complex solution. There's a point in my book in which I talk about this. You know, what's funny? Thing, the funny thing about biology is that 20 years ago, Everyone talked about human malleability, changing human beings by changing changing environments. They would say, change the social environment, change the economic environment. The funny thing about biology is that it's taken over the conversation. And these days, rather than saying, change the environment, change the social, political, cultural, economic environment, we're saying, change the biology. And obviously, human traits are a mix of both. You can, there's biology plus environment. But it's, it's, it's surprising to me and rather shocking to me how much the conversation has twisted and become about the determinism of genetics. Change the genes and make a better baby. You know, while you could say, well, make a better school. Well, this all leads me to ask you a question that I really wonder about. It's getting increasingly easy to predict what your risk of having a disease is. You had schizophrenia and uh, bipolar bipolar disorder in your family. If you knew after a test that if you could know that you would definitely be suffering from one of these diseases, do you want to know or don't you want to know? So two two points to make about that. The first point is that I only want to know if I can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Empty knowledge for me is empty knowledge, um, especially because if I can't do something about it, it will just color my life. It'll color the lives of my children, my family, etc. So I prefer I prefer not to know if if I can't do anything about it. That's one. The second is that almost always these genetic tests, aside from the ones that I, a couple of examples I gave you, most of these genetic tests turn out to, because there's so many genes involved, involved and because there's such a level of environment and chance involved, they only tend to give you propensities. So they will tell you you have a 40% chance or a 20% chance or a 10% chance. So they're never going to tell you this is going to be it. That's right. There are diseases in which you can tell this is going to be it. Uh So cystic fibrosis being one of them, right? So, you know, there there are conditions, there are traits where if you have the genetic apparatus for that trait, you will have that trait. Um, I'll give you other examples. Down syndrome would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Tay-Sachs disease would be another one of those. So let me counter this with a, an, an idea that occurs to me. I mean, I I had the suspicion that I had Parkinson's, and a, a doctor examining me said, you don't have it. I don't see any signs. I said, give me a scan. I want to make sure. I want to know if I got it. And I did. The reason I wanted to know was if there was anything I could do about it, as you just said, I wanted to be able to do it immediately. Yes. But there's this other thing. You also have the chance to begin adapting to it. Well, there is a, there is a question that you can, you can adapt to. That's absolutely true. It's just that the – and f- for me, the risk versus the benefit 
of adapting or knowing early um, was just is not sufficient. It's this turns out to be an intimate decision. This is why genetics yeah. is is intimate. Yes. Some people, for some people, the knowledge is important because you can adapt it. You can tell your spouse and say, "Honey, prepare for a particular way that my this is going to be my life's journey from now on." For me, it was. Gosh, you know, if I found out I had a I had a seventy percent risk of of having schizophrenia in my lifetime, and let's say I had a an episode in which I felt anxious, um, and and forgot yeah, something. And you said, "Oh my God, is this it?" That's right. And then and imagine that not once, not twice, but going on through the, through all of your life. So I'm a writer. I have writer's block all the time, right? <laughs> right. Every human being, every but writer has writer's block. it's not necessarily schizophrenia. That's right. So every time I had writer's block, would I say to myself, gosh, this is the onset of my schizophrenia. And that would become a self-perpetuating loop because it would give me even deeper writer's block to know. <laughs> so, so, so rather than, rather than getting on a train that would, that had no stop, in my case, I made the intimate decision not to explore it. But uh, you're absolutely right. Some people might say, "I want to, I want to know as much as I want to know, so that I can get prepared for it. I can maybe I can be in a clinical trial. Maybe I can." It really depends on the person and their mental makeup. Well, one of the things we can't do anything about is I'm getting the news that it, we're at the end of our conversation. Sadly. But sadly is right. But we always end our conversations with seven quick questions. Are okay. you game? I'm it, game. Now, this may seem like an odd question given what we've already been talking about, but what is there that you really wish you understood? I really wish I understood why some cancers are so uh, easy to... Or, or are so responsive to treatment while others are not. Hmm. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> I usually go and tell them that uh, I, I usually like the the two word uh, um, uh, the two word answer, which is "you're wrong." <laughs> a tidal wave of frankness. Yeah, the tidal wave of frankness, exactly. Right. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, well, you know, I should tell you that I it, it, it happens to me all the time. People think that I'm for some reason I don't know why. People think that that I, I that I somehow have a good sense of direction, and so, <laughs> so they ask you directions. They ask me directions all the time, <laughs> and I'm completely wrong. I'm I, if you had asked directions for me, the best thing you could possibly do is to walk in the other the, the other the other way. But, well, you ought to develop the line from that old joke. You can't get there from here. <laughs> exactly. Then that'll that'll they'll that'll take that. It'll serve take. them right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Next one. How do you how do you stop a compulsive talker? How do uh, you you know? That, so I, I said that two words is um, is very good uh, for for telling people they're wrong. A great way to stop a compulsive talker from talking is to keep saying the word stop. <laughs> You know, your whole life is crisper. <laughs> you cut you cut it right out. You cut it right to the bone. Well, that's interesting. Okay, next question. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone who you don't know at a dinner party? I usually like to ask them what they've read recently. That you know, what what's the most interesting book you've read, most interesting article you've read, most interesting thing you've read recently. And that's usually for me a, a good segue into 
several hours and until I have to say stop repeatedly. <laughs> Did, it, it, you seem to me like a confident person, so this question is uh, <laughs> right aimed at you. What gives you confidence? Well, I think... Um, I mean, this sound. This will sound like a strange answer, but um, knowing what you don't know can give you a lot of confidence. I, I don't have any hesitation. First of all, I have no hesitation telling people I have no idea. Right. Oh, that's so good. And so, and um, you know, that was that, that was something that Paul Berg taught me, and then Alan Townsend, my my advisor, taught me. It is very simple to do. It's a very simple thing to do, and. When, when you're confronted with someone who actually knows something about <laughs> it's a the good, subject. It's a good strategy. It's a good strategy to say, you know what, I have no idea. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me. Most graduates, you know, if you're a professor, it turns out it, it, you will train people to out, to make you outdated, right? That's, right. That's your professional responsibility and your occupational hazard, is that you're, you're creating people to make you outmoded and outdated, right? So... My my students who are working on a problem know more about that problem than I do. So whenever I approach them and I say, you know, here's my two bits of advice, they'll say, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mukherjee. But in fact, you're wrong. Um, and then I'll say to myself, well, you know, tell me. Tell, tell me. Right. And I, I, do you, I, I feel a tremendous sense of relief I feel whenever I can say, I don't know about that. I, and, and that's what gives you, and that's what gives people confidence because you, you're not in... You're not on shaky territory ever. If you once you get into territory where you have no idea, you say, "I have no idea." Right. You don't have to defend a guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, last question: What book has changed your life? Uh, I would say the the book stylistically, the book that changed my life the most was probably Primo Levi's book, "Survival in Auschwitz." Um, because it was a, it's a story that um, was written by a scientist. Primo was a chemist, um, and he wrote that, and then he wrote a book called The Periodic Table, both of which I find very stylistically very important. And I couldn't tell you exactly why. They're not related to my book. What do you mean by style? By style, I meant the, a kind of... It, there's an intimacy in the book, but there's also a kind of critical distance um, from himself. He sees himself a chemist, uh, um, a man confined to a camp, with a kind of um, distance. He's, he's not scathing on himself, but he's also not overly kind to himself. He's not scathing to his field, the field of chemistry or synthetic chemistry, but he's not scathing or kind to it either. So somehow that book always remained and has remained with me. Well, this conversation was remaining with me, I think, for quite a while. I really had fun with you, Sid. My pleasure. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you very much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Siddhartha's first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, 
was the winner of the 2011 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction, and it became the basis of a Ken Burns series on cancer for PBS. His latest book is called The Gene, An Intimate History, and it's the story of the quest to decipher the master code of instructions that makes and defines us as humans. When he's not writing, Dr. Mukherjee is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University and a cancer physician and researcher. To find out more about his work, his research, and his books, you can visit his website at siddhartamukherjee.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can always say, Alexa, play Clear and Vivid on Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Carl Safina. Carl, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about all the other animals we're here on this planet with, how great they are, what they think about, and how they feel. What they think about and how they feel. Other animals thinking and feeling. Next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>